Well, by now, you will know that quite often I begin a sermon with a pretty light-hearted story, one maybe about myself or about my family or about one of my friends or someone that I know, as a way of getting you engaged, as a way of getting you to listen to the words that I'm speaking in the hope and the expectation that you will go on listening as we get into God's Word and we think about the truth of what the Lord is saying to us. But tonight, a slightly different beginning. I guess a bit of a gear change. Because let's face it, we live in the real world, and all of us are subject to weakness and to problems as we go through our lives. And in my life, I am subject to a couple of phobias that have really had a big impact on my life down through the years. And to try and explain that as easily as possible, for me to get lost or to get stuck somewhere would be my worst case scenario. But here's what can make the difference to how I feel in many of those scenarios. If I face it alone, then I am gripped with fear and panic. But if someone I know and trust, someone with ability and authority is leading the way, then things are transformed. So, to think about that in practice, if you were to dump me tonight out right in the middle of the Antrim Hills without a phone, without a map, and I looked around and I couldn't see anyone at all, then I would go to pieces. But if I was set out there with an experienced mountain guide to lead the way, I'd be absolutely fine. Or to give an example from real life, if you told me that I had to find my way to a remote village in Eastern Europe, crossing two borders along the way, handing my passport over and being delayed at a frontier, I would be absolutely terrified. But when I took that journey, sitting in a van alongside a trusted guide who I already knew, I went into that situation with confidence. Tonight, as we continue our study in this great chapter of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, we begin to see what the truth of the resurrection means for us. And it is a truth that changes everything. It transforms how those of us who trust in Christ approach death, something that absolutely terrifies people. And our approach to death is transformed because Jesus leads the way. And we know Him, and we can trust Him. He has ultimate ability and authority as He leads us. So, let's turn again to 1 Corinthians 15. And if you've got your Bibles in front, if you look again, please, at this passage with me. We have been considering the amazing, life-changing message of the gospel that Paul discusses at length in this chapter. 
And Paul reminds the Corinthian Christians of the central, most important things that we believe. And absolutely central to this gospel is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, which is the great foundation of our hope in what is such a hopeless world. So, Paul takes up most of this chapter presenting the truth of the resurrection, both the resurrection of Christ and the future resurrection of those who believe in Him. So, let's consider again what we were looking at last week in the verses that we read. Last time, Paul told us about the the resurrection. And the first thing that we discovered is that the resurrection is very important. Look again at what Paul says in verse 3. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Nothing is more important than this. And then Paul explained that the resurrection is true. Verse 20, where we left off, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And Paul laid out the evidence for Christ's resurrection. He talks in verses 5 to 11 about the appearances of the risen Christ. He lists all of the people that the risen Jesus appeared to, including Himself. And then the other thing that we discovered about the resurrection last time, the resurrection is very good news. It is part, such a big part of the gospel, which literally means good news. That gospel that Paul summarizes there in verses 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And last week we finished at verse 20, where Christ is described as the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And it is the meaning of that verse that changes absolutely everything. Let's quickly consider what we're going to look at tonight and in the remaining couple of weeks of this short series. Tonight, we are going to think about this wonderful message of how those who trust in Christ will share in His resurrection. Then next week, we'll think about some of the the specifics of this. We'll, We'll ask, what will this actually be like? What will our resurrection bodies be like? And then, God willing, on Easter Sunday, we will finish by looking at the final verse of this really long chapter as we think about the impact this should have in our lives here and now. But let's remember why Paul is taking time to explain all of this so carefully. Remember that this chapter is part of a letter that is written to a congregation in a place called Corinth. And the thing about that church in Corinth is that there was much that was good about that church. For example, at the beginning of this chapter, Paul talks about how they were taking their stand for the gospel, and they were getting it tough, being gospel people. 
But what also becomes clear in this letter and then in the one that follows is that there was lots that was wrong in this church. There were big problems and things that were going badly wrong. And so, in this book, and then in 2 Corinthians, the issues that Paul is addressing, they are his response to the problems that he's been hearing about. Quite often in these letters, you hear Paul say things like, it's come to my attention, or I've been hearing that this is going on in the life of your church. But also in these chapters, Paul is answering the questions that the Corinthian Christians have asked him in previous correspondence. Remember that letters were the way in which people communicated at this time. And what becomes really clear is that there is very good reason for Paul to talk about the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of his believers, because here is the problem. Look at verse 12. Paul says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, which was the message that Paul and others had been preaching in Corinth, he then asks, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? This is the major problem that Paul is addressing in this chapter. It's not that these people were denying the idea of life after death, but they were denying the doctrine of the bodily resurrection. And that was probably because of where they came from. At the time of writing, Corinth was a pagan city. It was a city that was greatly influenced by Greek philosophy, by the, the Greek way of thinking. And remember that Christians were a tiny minority in this city. And so, in this church, there was a small group of people who were subscribing to a Greek idea of life after death rather than a Christian one. So, let's quickly summarize what this group that Paul is challenging here in verse 12 did and did not believe. For this great group, they could just about accept the resurrection of Jesus as a one-off event, and they certainly embraced this Greek idea of the immortality of their soul. They believed that in some way the Spirit lived on beyond death. But the idea that our bodies will be raised indestructible to live forever, that idea was crazy to them. So, that last time we considered Paul's response, Paul argues, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then there is no resurrection full stop, and that includes the resurrection of Jesus. And he argues, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, well then what's the point? What's the point in calling ourselves Christians? What's the point in believing anything about Christ or anything that Jesus said? And so, this is why Paul insists so much in verse 20, and look at it again, but Christ has indeed 
been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that is the central verse in this most important of chapters. And Paul is saying something here that should thrill every Christian believer present here in this church tonight, that Christ has risen from the dead. Praise God. And that because He has, you will too. And to make this vital point that we who have trusted in Christ will share in His resurrection, Paul paints the picture of Jesus as the first fruits. He says that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, what does he mean? Well, let me try and explain it like this. My wife is a very good cook. And I'm not just saying that, she really is. And sometimes Bellan spoils me with a preview of what we're about to eat. That happens every Sunday afternoon when I get home from church. I get in from church, and I don't know what the technical term is. Is the beef resting? It's sitting under foil anyway while everything else is getting ready. And when I come into the kitchen, Bellan breaks off a wee bit of the beef, a wee end bit of the beef, just a mouthful of beef, and it tastes great. And it is a foretaste. It is a preview of the big Sunday dinner that is about to happen. And the first fruits were the, the first part of the crop. They were the, the foretaste. They were the, the preview of what's to come. And in Jewish culture, the first bit of the crop, whether that was olives or grapes or figs or wheat, it was offered to God and it was celebrated by the people because it guaranteed that the rest of the crop was coming. It was saying, there's more from where this came from. Now, can you see why the Lord Jesus is described by Paul as being the first fruits here in verse 20? Because He is the firstborn from among the dead that guarantees that all His people will be resurrected as well. So, let's be really specific here. Christian believer, this is such a great source of joy and hope for you. Because when Jesus burst forth into life on that first Easter morning, when the blood began to course through His body again, when He took that first breath and, and His lungs inflated, this is a great guarantee of what lies ahead. And what a comfort that is for us in our failing and broken bodies and minds. What great hope that is for people here tonight who are concerned about loved ones and their failing and decaying bodies as well. And having described Jesus as the first fruits, Paul then explains how Jesus leads the way. Look at verse 21. He says, For since 
death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And as we hear those verses, the first thing that we may wonder and we may ask ourselves about is, is Paul saying here that all people will be saved, that all people will share in Jesus' resurrection? Because after all, in verse 22, there's the phrase, all die, and then there is the phrase, all will be made alive. So, let's understand that. Well, all of mankind, all of humankind, all who have ever lived can be traced back to Adam. And that means that all of us share in his sin. And because we share in his sin, we also share in the consequence of that sin, death. So, that is why death is common to us all. But who are they all that Paul goes on to talk about in relation to Christ and His resurrection? Well, it's not all people, as in everyone who has ever lived, but it is all who are related to Christ through faith. That's why we need to go on and read verse 23, where Paul refers to all as being those who belong to Him, that is Christ. And if we begin to think of all that we know from the Scriptures about those who belong to Christ, we know that they have been given to Jesus by the Father, as the Lord Jesus tells us in John's Gospel. We know that they are united to Him, that they belong to Him by faith. And what Paul is telling us here this message, it, it goes against the prevailing view of our society today. It goes against what we so often hear when people die, particularly celebrities. Because when that happens, it is so often accompanied by vague talk of death and vague talk of going off to a better place. And the assumption, the understanding is that being in that better place is automatic. It is common to all people. And we know that what Paul is saying here is not a popular truth today, that it would immediately be countered by people who say, what? You're trying to say that there are people who would be excluded from sharing in this? It may not be a popular truth, but people, this is the truth stated often in Scripture, so that outside of Christ, there is no hope. Outside of Christ, there is no future, so turn to Him while He is near. But when will this happen? Well, in this passage, Paul does not give us an exact timetable because, of course, the timetable is determined by God Himself. But Paul does tell us the sequence of these events so that if we look at verse 23 again, he says, but each in turn 
Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. There is a sequence. So that Christ leads the way for his people. The bodily resurrection of his believers will happen at the point of his return. And we don't know when exactly that will be, but we know it will happen because Jesus has told us He will return. And based on all that is taught in Scripture, we believe that the soul of a believer comes into God's presence at the point of death. That for the believer in Christ, when they die, they go to be with the Lord, which, as Paul says elsewhere, is better by far. But the receiving of our resurrection body will be a future event, and it will happen at the same time to all who have died in Christ. And Paul stresses that the resurrection of those who are in Christ will be simply the beginning of what the Lord will do in that final stage. We don't have time to look at all of that tonight, but if you look down through verses 24 to 28, they spell out what Christ will finally achieve. It's at this point that Christ will have destroyed all opposition to His reign in the universe, both demonic forces that we cannot see, and then human, that opposition that often the church of Jesus bears the brunt of. And then in verse 26, Paul says that Christ will finally destroy our great enemy death so that God's people will never face it again and therefore will have nothing to fear for all eternity. And what wonderful news that is in a world that is marred by death. Just before we finally think about what this means for us tonight, and what it means for us this coming week, let me deal with what Paul says in verse 29, because I realize it could cause confusion. Listen again to Paul's words there. He says, now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And, and as you read those words, maybe it causes you to scratch your head and to think, well, what's that all about? Well, this was a practice that had emerged in some congregations like the one in Corinth, whereby some people who became Christians were getting baptized on behalf of dead relatives who had died as pagans, as non-believers, and they did it in the hope that somehow it would get the dead person sorted out with God. And as we hear of that tonight, the vitally important thing to say is that Paul mentions this practice, but he does not endorse it. In fact, there is nowhere in the Scriptures where this practice is advocated or taught, and as such, it is as unscriptural as praying for the dead. And so it brings up the big question, well then, why does Paul bother mentioning it? If he doesn't agree with it, if he knows that it's wrong, 
And he mentions this to highlight how mixed up some of these Corinthian Christians had become. Because on the one hand, they would engage in a practice that had never been taught by the apostles in the hope that it would sort out dead people. And yet, on the other hand, they don't even accept the resurrection of the dead. So, as Paul rightly asks, what's the point in doing this really strange thing? And for us tonight, just reading this verse is such a great reminder that at times, church people can get it so badly wrong, that church people can be brought far off course. And that is why we have such a great need for God's Word and the teaching of God's Word. Folks, what we're hearing tonight, this is really important stuff. And right at the very center of the gospel is the resurrection. And this is the hope that we have in such a hopeless world. And so, here's what all this means for us as we come towards the end. It means that Christ leads the way. His bodily resurrection has taken place. Ours lies ahead in the future. And so, what that means is that we find ourselves in a period of waiting but we do not wait with concern and doubt. No, we wait with great certainty and great excitement because Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of what is to come. Do you believe that? The Second World War lasted from 1939 to 1945. Do you know when the great wartime Prime Minister Winston Churchill realized that the victory had been won? Was it in June 1944 after D-Day, the Allied invasion of the continent? Or was it later on, sometime in 1945? No, his realization that the victory had been won was as early as December 1941 following Pearl Harbor and America's entry into the war, because Churchill was an intelligent man, and he realized that that was the game changer. It was their entry into the war that changed the whole course of what would happen. So that he wrote of that day in his diary, and listen to these words, so we had won after all. We had won the war. No doubt, it would take a long time, many disasters, immeasurable cost, and tribulation lay ahead, but there was no more doubt about the end. So that he finishes his diary entry by saying, I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. I went to bed and I slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. In this world of trouble and stress 
and great uncertainty. Believer in Christ, sleep well tonight. Sleep the sleep of the saved and thankful. For in Christ, the victory is won. In Christ, you are on the winning side. And He leads the way. And while there may be real heartache, even in this week that lies ahead, there is no more doubt about the end. Amen.